Christchurch, New Malden. Sunday the 3rd of July 2022, 11 o'clock service. Katie Loffman speaking on God's Big Plan. It's always intrigued me when I listen to the carols from Kings uh, at Christmas that the introduction introduces all those readings and all those carols as the story of God's eternal plan. And uh, it's interesting how all those readings come together to tell one big story. And I think, that, uh, yeah, and the way that they all point to the birth of a baby in a manger, which is what is being celebrated through that Nine Lessons and Carols, the whole sweep of Israel's history leading up to that point. Some people find the Old Testament off-putting. I even knew somebody who told me that he never read the Old Testament because it's not Christian. What? Well, he said, it's pre-Christian. So he didn't bother with it. Well, I think that's a bit of a shame. And if we do have that attitude, I think we miss so much. Our own Christianity becomes untethered from its roots. It's like a Christmas tree how much stronger the tree is when it's still got its roots for support and nourishment. Our faith, in the same way, is strengthened by having its roots in the Old Testament because with that support, it becomes so much richer and more meaningful. We know from Jesus' teaching that God's plan is to send Jesus to rescue the world from evil and to renew it as part of his glorious kingdom and that we will eventually live there with God. We can get that from the New Testament. But if we look at the, the Old Testament, we can see that that's always been God's plan. And Israel has been living it out as a kind of visual aid, a living prophecy, long before Jesus was born on earth. And that's why Hebrews chapter 11 that Dick read gives a long list of faithful Old Testament characters. Each one had something to tell us about God's big plan. At the 9.30 service this morning, Christchurch had some rather unusual guest speakers. Noah, Abraham, Moses, Ruth and King David, all played by worthy members of the congregation with the requisite beards, cloaks, things over their heads, all the rest of it. And each one of those people was used by God to move the plan on a bit. And we can learn something from their moral example, but their real purpose is to tell us about God and his plan. So often in the Bible, people are given a commission by God, and it looks like God has a plan. But then it doesn't take long for God's people to mess up. It means, it, I mean, it happens really soon. If you look at Genesis, Adam and Eve, they were created and the garden was perfect. They were sinless. They were supposed to be taking care of the world that God had made. But it didn't take long for them to ruin that perfect world, to introduce sin. It's not like they did a good, genera a good job for many generations and then it gradually went wrong. No, they went wrong straight away. It's only the third chapter of the Bible. And in the very next generation, we see the first murder. Adam and Eve's son Cain killing his younger brother, Abel. 
Later, when God gave the law to, to Moses, all the Israelites pledged to keep the law and be faithful to God. But within days, they'd gone astray and started worshipping the golden calf. And those just two examples. It seems that every time God tries to work with humanity, humans mess it up. And they ruin the plan immediately. Must be like working with a two-year-old. <laughs> what did God think was going to happen? He knows what we're like. What did he think? Did he know that we would fail him? Well, of course he did. And the Bible, the way that the Bible unfolds makes that clear that he had a plan all along that would take that failure into account. Take Noah, for example. God couldn't bear all the sin and corruption in the world and he decided to deal with it by drowning everything. When he flooded the world, it was as if he was undoing the creation that he'd made and putting everything back to the time before creation when it was just dark waters. And the story of Noah in Genesis 7 shows us that the consequence of sin is death, a separation from the light and life of God's good creation. But all is not totally lost. God commissions a good man, Noah, to build an ark out of wood, a boat that will sail over those dark flood waters like the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters of the deep before the world was formed. In that miraculous ark is a family, three young couples and their two parents, as well as the animals that will repopulate the earth. God had chosen a carpenter and his family to rescue humanity and nature from the evil in the world. You see how already there are echoes of God's ultimate salvation and redemption, a way for people to be saved through one righteous man and the means to renew the earth in a kind of rebirth like a baptism. And that's why God sent the rainbow and the promise. God doesn't need to destroy the world again. He has a different way of responding. <clears throat> this was the start of God's big plan. His covenant with the world. His promise that in future he was going to rescue the world, not destroy it. Here's a God of love. He won't abandon the world to its fate. He won't let evil run riot unchecked. And never again will he destroy everything. Instead, he's provided the means of rescue. Each of us is invited to get on board and be part of the renewed earth, God's new creation. But like I said, no sooner had God made a plan than humans messed it up. The Tower of Babel was a key moment. Humans, in their arrogance, again thought they knew better than God and tried to build a big tower up to heaven. God didn't allow that, so he scattered them and gave them different languages. That division and lack of unity is still with us to this day. We see it in racism and wars. But on the day of Pentecost, those language barriers were reversed. The disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. Everyone could understand them. And strangers were drawn together. It was a sign that the things that divide us, 
that division that God imposed will one day be overcome and we will again be united by the Holy Spirit and by the grace of the Holy Spirit when we work towards that unity ourselves we're being part of God's big plan to reverse the consequences of division. Fast forward several generations and we meet Noah, uh, we meet Abraham. And we start to see some of the specifics of God's rescue plan. He expands the idea of the rescued family from Noah's little family of eight to Abraham's vast family, starting with the miraculous baby born to an infertile couple and growing to outnumber the stars in the sky or the sand on the beach. God calls Abraham to travel to a land that he promises will one day be his, a land where his family will flourish and grow. And through that one big family in that land, the whole world will be blessed. And humans went on messing things up. <laughs> Noah wasn't perfect, and Abraham and Sarah definitely had their faults. But it was God's faithfulness, not theirs, that would make sure the promise was kept. But of course, God's faithfulness and his promises are timeless and eternal, and he makes the same call upon us, the call to be part of that one big family, chosen to travel through life, being God's blessing on the world. And at the end of our journey, we'll find ourselves in the place he's promised. Again, generations went by, and Abraham's descendants ended up in Egypt, slaves, totally trapped by an oppressive power. Now, that rescue was really needed, and God stepped in with another man, called to enact the next part of God's plan, Moses. Ten plagues were visited upon Egypt, with the death of the firstborns being the one that finally freed God's people. The children of Israel escaped, but then they came up against the Red Sea. Water, again, that symbol of chaos and judgment. But again, God was in control, and he made a way through. A way through the water to safety on the other side. Again, like a baptism. Our own baptism is a sacrament of our own rescue from the oppressive powers of sin and suffering as we renounce evil and turn to Christ and take on our new identity as citizens of God's kingdom. And that spiritual and physical rescue was that we experience is physically demonstrated by the children of Israel fleeing from the Egyptian army. As they emerge on the other side of the Red Sea, they too gained a new identity. They became a nation on its way to the land promised, by Ab prom promised to Abraham all those centuries before. And for this, God used Moses, a man who had himself been rescued by water. I don't think it's a coincidence that the basket in that picture reminds me of Noah's Ark. All through that journey, God was visibly with the children of Israel, leading them in a pillar of cloud or a pillar of smoke, pillar of fire, coming to rest, of course, in the Ark of the Covenant, in the tabernacle, 
God was living with his people in the Holy of Holies. And all during that journey, God was shaping the children of Israel from a family into a nation. The Israelites, with leaders and commandments and laws and God as its head. They were meant to demonstrate to the rest of the world what it looked like to live under God, in God's presence. But as we know, humans just can't help themselves. And it wasn't long before they'd messed up the plan again. Laws were broken. Leaders were corrupt. God's presence was ignored. Was God's plan scuppered? Do you sometimes feel that in your own life? That you've let God down too many times? Maybe there are some things you've done that you sometimes feel God won't want you. Well, the events of the Old Testament tell us that is never the case. God doesn't let people go, and he doesn't give up on his plan. We see God starting to put the, into place the next stage of his plan with a young immigrant woman called Ruth. Like the others, it started with a journey. She came from Moab, and she went with her Israelite mother-in-law, Naomi, to live in Israel, her husband's homeland. Two widowed, childless women in need of a better life. And that's exactly what they found in the promised land. Ruth was faithful to Naomi and to God, and Naomi helped her to get together with Boaz, her distant cousin. Ruth and Boaz's marriage redeemed both Ruth and Naomi redeemed both of them from tragedy and exclusion, bringing them right into the heart of God's kingdom. That wonderful marriage paved the way for the redemption of Israel and the world because their great-great-grandson was King David, the ancestor of Jesus. Ruth's experience tells us that God is not limited to one nation, but all are welcome into his big family. And he wants to use even the most marginalised and disadvantaged people in his big plan. Ruth was a Gentile. She was a widow. She was an immigrant. She became the bride of Boaz, and that made her part of God's family, just as the church is the bride of Christ. Like Ruth, redeemed from death and abandonment by being married into God's family as well. But as well as the marginalised and the disadvantaged, God can also use the rich and famous. And perhaps the most famous person in the Old Testament was King David. He was the youngest son of a wealthy Israelite family, drawn from obscurity when the prophet Samuel anointed him as the successor to King Saul. God made huge promises to David that his kingdom would be eternal and a descendant of his would be on the throne of Israel forevermore. Now we know, of course, that that descendant was Jesus, king not only of Israel, but of the whole world. And David's life gave glimpses of that. It's amazing how many details of his life have parallels with the life of Jesus. Earlier this year, we had a sermon series on the life of David, and we saw the many ways in which 
his life, him, himself, was a living prophecy of Jesus. If you want to hear more about that, you can find the sermons on our website, ccnm.org. David was a man after God's own heart. And perhaps that's why he prefigured so much of Jesus' ministry and his work. But David wasn't whiter than white. He had a colourful life. He was a fearsome warrior who sometimes went a bit too far. And he went a bit too far in his private life as well, wrecking two marriages by sleeping with Bathsheba, then trying to cover it up. And when that failed, getting her husband killed. How could a man after God's own heart be so wicked? But thankfully, God doesn't have to rely on the faithfulness of his people. It's the other way round. We can rely on God's faithfulness. And David knew that. When people let God down, it makes God's faithfulness shine even more brightly. It's wonderful when we can see that in our own life. Looking back on my life, I can see that even in the times when I've not stayed close to God, God was still blessing me and guiding me and providing for me. And that makes me love him more because it's unconditional. He never leaves us, never gives up on us, never stops loving us. So where does God's plan, God's big plan, go next? Well, it took Isaiah the prophet to draw some of the strands together and start to interpret them. Through Isaiah, we hear about the suffering servant, the one who takes on the suffering and abuse on behalf of the whole world. It was supposed to be Israel. That's what the original blessing was. That was how they were to bless the world. But even with the law to guide them, the Jews couldn't fulfill that role because of their constant human failings. So God unveiled the greatest part of his plan, that he would himself provide the means for them to do that, the perfect human, the perfect servant, the perfect sacrifice. And as such, he was the perfect Israelite. All of Israel and Israel's destiny distilled down into that one person. Centuries later, that servant king was born, Jesus, serving God perfectly in his life and in his death, in order to rescue humanity from evil. This was the fulfilment of God's big plan. And the best is yet to come. When that rescue comes into effect and the earth is renewed and filled with God's kingdom, and we are united with Jesus forever. God promised Noah that he would not destroy the world, he would rescue it. God gave Abraham a worldwide family and a safe, secure homeland. God used Moses to bring the law so that we would recognize wrongdoing and our need for rescue. God used Ruth to show us that anyone can be saved from disaster and drawn into the centre of God's family. God promised David that he would send a different kind of king to defeat evil and rule for eternity. And God used Isaiah and the other prophets to tell us the mysterious truth that this would all come about 
not by being a mighty warrior, but through suffering and sacrifice. So these are some of the Old Testament roots of our faith, grounded in Israel's history and grounded in the unfailing faithfulness of God over millennia. God works out his plan not by zapping the world with his power or by forcing people to do his will. No, all these people show us that God works out his plan through ordinary people with all their failings. And it's often because of their failings that he can use them. What a wonderful, forgiving, loving God we have who can bring beauty out of brokenness, who can bring a perfect plan out of an imperfect world, who can bring transformed lives out of our sinful, messed up, constantly failing lives. Whenever we act with forgiveness, with sacrifice, with love, with justice or unity, in step with the Holy Spirit, when we do that, we are like those Old Testament characters. We offer our life to him and we ask him to use us, faults and all, and he will build up his kingdom through us. Our lives then become a prophecy of his loving rescue plan. And that our lives not only are a prophecy of God's big plan, but our lives, just like those Old Testament characters, our lives are building blocks in that plan. And we're building blocks in his promised kingdom, just like those heroes of faith in Hebrews 11 and throughout the Bible. <laughs>